0: Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome back uh, to another at-home edition of our Banner Lecture Series. Uh, I'm Adam Scher, Vice President for Collections and Exhibitions. So glad you could join us today. Uh, First of all, uh, a shout out to all of our members who helped to make our programs possible. Uh, We could not do this without you. Uh, Your support is always deeply appreciated. So now on for today's lecture, uh, which deals with Richmond's graveyards. Uh, They date back to the founding uh, through the Civil War, emancipation, uh, up to the present day. Uh, But they've often been treated in isolation. Uh, And today's lecture will compare uh, these sites, not only in terms of their their individual dynamics, uh, as well as the ongoing states, of preservation and commemoration. Though the issue of race has shaped them all, uh, the latest recovery efforts point to a redefinition of Confederate memory and an elevation of black American and indigenous graves with the potential for a rebirth community in the symbolic center of the South. And we're very happy to have Dr. Ryan Smith with us today. Uh, Ryan is a professor of history at VCU Uh, and is the author of several books, including Gothic Arches, Latin Crosses, and Anti-Catholicism, and American Church Designs in the 19th Century, uh, and Death and Rebirth in a Southern City, Richmond's Historic Cemeteries, which is the subject for his talk today. So please welcome Dr. Ryan Smith. Hey,
1: Adam, it's Graham. Sorry, we temporarily lost the speaker. Uh, from our studio. He's had to reboot his um, Wi Fi. So, if you all will bear with us just a moment, uh, we will bring him to you very shortly. In fact, here he is. Apologies, everyone. Here he is. Uh, the Wi Fi had some issues on my end, so I apologize about that. So, I assume that the introductions have gone through and I, I'm ready to start here. Let me uh, share my screen with us all and keep our fingers crossed that the uh, connection holds. So, right. oh, uh, Thanks, Graham and Adam, for inviting me here today. Uh, as I said, I apologize again about the connections, the poor connections. Um, I, I did want to say, first off, how helpful the Virginia Museum history and culture has been for my research for this project of death and rebirth in a southern city. Uh, I I used a variety of resources there. I used the Hollywood Cemetery Company records. I used a lot of family papers, including the Charles Palmer family papers. I used the A.D. Price funeral home records and the St. John's Church Foundation uh, records. So all of those and, and many more were super helpful there. I'd also like to just quickly thank a few of the folks that walked with me throughout this entire project. Um, Anna Edwards, Lenora McQueen, Denise Lester, Brian and Aaron Aaron Palmer, John Shuck, Jeffrey Burden, Allison Taylor White, Greg Kimball, the East End Cemetery Collaboratory, there's a ton of others. uh, And I'm sorry, I I can't name everybody, but uh, it's it's been wonderful to be able to engage with so many different people and their work in this area. Uh, to help put some thoughts together here on Richmond's historic cemeteries. Let me begin with with just a couple points. Uh, One point is how are Richmond cemeteries unique? You know, what what brings us to this specific topic? We recognize that cemeteries everywhere uh, are important places, essential places for human dignity and spirituality and human rights as well as for historical sources and historical understanding. But I think Richmond gives us something special uh, in terms of this topic. Uh, We can trace quite a long stretch of time throughout the cemeteries in our region compared with some other parts of the United States. Uh, We've got materials here that date prior to European contact through the colonial settlements and the rise of slavery through the Revolutionary War era, the expansion of the slave trade, uh, obviously the, the epicenter of the Civil War here and emancipation, and then the struggles for memory and civil rights that, that followed that uh, experience, and then immigration trends throughout it all. And so we look at all of those uh, events and, and length of time over 300 years I think we start to see something different from what we see in other regions, even across the state of Virginia. And I think a particularly large number of Americans are interested in our cemeteries here in Richmond. Um, Given the dispersal of families through the slave trade uh, or just the westward migration of other families, there are a number of folks throughout the United States that can trace their family histories back through Virginia. And uh, we hear from many of them and many return to to visit the the grave sites here. And as we've seen over this past year, uh, the Richmond Memorial landscape in general just has tremendous symbolic power in the imagination of of the nation. Uh, And so what we see when we trace this long history uh, from the city's origins to the present is we see that burial practices have shifted a great deal uh, beginning with a a churchyard model or a burial ground graveyard model family burial grounds moving into a, a more civic gridded burial ground to the rural cemetery movement national cemeteries and memorial parks and i want to go through some of those changes today but through all of those changes it seems to be that racial divisions have stayed constant throughout those changes as white leaders have fairly consistently sought to diminish the humanity of others. And indigenous and black residents have had to continually fight to maintain the dignity of their own burial spaces. But uh, the book is titled Their Death and Rebirth. I I do believe we may be seeing
0: some type of a reorientation
1: All right, apologies everyone, my camera dropped out. And so I wondered if the screen had dropped out as well. But let's move on if we can. Uh, We'll go over to our presentation and begin that. I wanna begin with a map of our region. For those of you unfamiliar with the Richmond geography, uh, we're gonna start with basically three steps. Our first step will be in the city center here on on Church Hill and in Shaco Bottom uh, and some of the earlier burial grounds there uh, along the riverbank in the oldest part of the city near the state capital. On the the north end of the city, uh, we have a second wave of cemeteries that set up uh, on the edge between Henrico County and Richmond. And then our last phase are out on the west and eastern fringes of the city on the outside. So here's a, just a quick look at uh, the, the, the geography of the places that we're going to be looking to today. I'd like to start us off with indigenous remains. We recognize that we're on Palatine land in, in Richmond. And so uh, we could point to an archaeological excavation from 1974 along Canal Street, when the downtown expressway was going in. And uh, the work uncovered, uh, apparently, an indigenous village site from about 900 uh, of the current era, so almost a thousand years ago, dating this site from. And they uncovered several burials there, including the burials of two adults and three to five children. Uh, The burials were Uh, positioned on their sides, facing the riverfront. And uh, one of the most elaborate burials there was of uh, a middle-aged man who had quivers of arrows with five unused points uh, near that quiver near his head, and then five antler tines, other sorts of points, around or near his waist. There was also a knife and a hammerstone that lay on his chest. And so the discovery of these burials, these uh, rather ancient burials in in downtown Richmond, I think points to the care given by ancient tribes towards their dead, as well as the importance of the riverside there. There's other traditions of having group ossuaries or group burials uh, generally throughout the James River Valley. Uh, But we get closer to the historic era of contact with the Europeans when uh, we get an example from Robert Beverly, who wrote his History and Present State of Virginia in 1705. And there, Beverly described breaking into uh, a a cuiacasin or a burial temple uh, by one of the tribes, possibly the Chickahominy, uh, very close to the falls here of, of the James. And he gives us a portrait of the survival of these Um, temple burials for elites of the Powhatan uh, chiefdom. Beverly broke into this temple. He knew it was a sensitive place, so he did this when uh, the village was away, and there inside he saw a partition of mats separating the entrance from the interior. He found uh, a hearth with a flame there, and moving up beyond that partition, he said that he found three bundles on the shelves. And when he cut into those bundles, he said, quote, we found some vast bones, which we judged to be the bones of men. The group also found some decorated tomahawks, some cloth, and a wooden figure, which he says, which we took to be their idol. And it was a customary representation of the god Oceus, who uh, was ceremonially decorated to stand guard over these Uh, elite um, remains placed uh, in the temple. The English group with Beverly rewrapped the materials, put them back on their shelves. He said that, quote, the Indians are extreme shy of exposing them. And so the illustration that we see here comes from his publication. I think the incident shows us this longstanding English willingness to trespass on the sanctity of bones and remains that were not their own. And that willingness lay at the core of their understanding of possessing the landscape. I think it helped set the course for Virginia's construction of race via the burial landscape uh, going forward. And so that same mindset helped explains that hurried excavation down along Shaco Slip for the downtown expressway and uh, the storage of uh, rather callous storage of those recovered human remains uh, in a VCU storage warehouse for decades uh, where we found them in 2015. And you can see that on the slide here on the left, those boxes of of indigenous remains. Today in the landscape, uh, the only commemoration in public for Indian, Indian burials that I'm aware of is in Chimborazo Park overlooking the river. In 1924, the Association for the Preservation of Virginia Antiquities placed a stone there that had sat for for decades on the Mayo Estate just east of the city, where it had been interpreted in guidebooks as the grave marker for the chief Palatan. Now, the Pamunkey tribe to the east claims the true burial of Palatan on the reservation in King William County, uh, but this stone celebrated in the guidebooks, at least, was a gesture towards a burial uh, of uh, uh, a historic Indian presence on the landscape. At the same time, the uh, Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, or NAGPRA, which was passed by Congress in 1990, provided a new mechanism for returning some of these excavated or looted sometimes graves and remains back to indigenous tribes. And so this does present a a new opportunity to to create new directions for the reclamation of indigenous burials. So moving on from that, we can look at what displaced uh, some of those indigenous burials with the earliest official burial ground in town here at St. John's Church in St. John's Churchyard that was founded with the city. The church was constructed in 1741, as the vestry book says, quote, on the hill called Indian Town. It was on the highest point in the area of the original city. You can see that it overlooks the river down to the far right of this painting from the 1830s. You can see the original footprint of the 1741 church on the far end of it, those other the tower and the addition were later additions but we can see the design here of the burial ground or what design there is the graves were fairly clustered around this ground it was organized by the anglican church the established church for the colony of virginia and this churchyard burial uh, we see replicated in other fall line and other towns like fredericksburg or petersburg Uh, Williamsburg, uh, Norfolk, Um, here in Richmond the town at the time of its founding was roughly half African, half European and those uh, ratios would hold for the next several centuries throughout most of the city's history but this churchyard was reserved exclusively for white burials and uh, black burials were excluded from the yard there was uh, an enclosure around it to further sacralize this this sacred space. Um, There was a wide variety of markers, as you can see here, but not a lot of order to those burials, fairly scattered. There were about 2,000, we think, burials here, but only about 400 markers or so survive. So this shows us a different mentality at work on the On the initial burial ground here in the churchyard. You can see a a plan of the churchyard as it later expanded by the city in 1799 and was enclosed by a brick wall. Broad Street is here to the north side, and there's the original footprint of that church. And I want you to notice the orientation of that. It is not oriented to the city streets, it's oriented rather due east and west. And so are the markers. You can see that the grave markers as they're plotted here in this plan also follow that east-west orientation primarily rather than um, the the orientation with the the streetscape so much. The earliest surviving marker there is that for Robert Rose on the upper right of your screen. He was a, a minister, came from Scotland, and he died near Richmond in 1751. After his death and burial in the churchyard, his uh, relatives erected this chest tomb for him. And the inscription on the top says that he was a friend to the whole human race. And upon that principle, a strenuous asserter and defender of liberty. And notwithstanding that, that grandiose language, he also owned nine plantations and enslaved at least 100 Africans on those plantations. So we do see a connection to a sense of liberty and bondage there, even within the churchyard itself. If that chest tomb is imported from England, on the bottom right, you can see a more local example. Here's the sandstone marker uh, from Abraham Shield, who died in 1798, and there his inscription shows us that he was a stone cutter and bricklayer of the county of Durham, Old England, and may have brought his skills to bear uh, on those other locally carved stones in the yard. Now, if we think about the preservation of St. John's Churchyard, uh, it continued up until about the, the mid 1800s in terms of burials. And after that, it became a very popular tourist site because of its connections to Patrick Henry's 1775, give me liberty or give me death speech. And so a foundation was created to support that site in the 1930s, the St. John's Church Foundation. And it was soon assisted by the APVA and the Historic Richmond Foundation. And they helped set up an architectural historic district around the churchyard. And in doing so, they ended up displacing a lot of black residents and black businesses Uh, including what we see here on the screen, what was once a line of businesses across from the church on Broad Street between 24th and 25th that were torn down to make way for Patrick Henry Park, the green space in the 1960s. So this uh, showed the city's priorities towards what they believed was worth saving and what was uh, not worth preserving. In the bottom right, we see that the foundation has continued with some really creative efforts to preserve the grounds. A lot of historical interpretation by costumed interpreters. There's been ground penetrating radar studies, archaeology, a stone conservation program. And so uh, the the legacy of that foundation has has evolved into some really creative work these days. Now, if we we look in contrast to where the city's African population was buried, uh, we see the so-called burial ground for Negroes listed on this 1809 map that is to the west of Shaco Creek along Shaco Valley, uh, in between that valley created by Shaco Hill, where the capital would be located, and what would be called Church Hill, where St. John's Churchyard is located. And so uh, we don't know exactly when this burial ground uh, was begun, The research from Matthew Laird and Brian Clark Green suggests that it may have been as late as 1799. Uh, What else can we say about the site? There was a powder magazine located nearby. You can see that M and the the legend there. It was located down the hillside from the Baptist Meeting House that had a significant uh, Black membership. Uh, It was unenclosed, and their observers would describe that steep hillside, washing some graves away into the current of Shaco Creek. Now the map here from 1809 shows the city gallows at the center of there, that N on the legend represents the city gallows. The, some research has shown us that the gallows may not have been placed there until as, as late as 1804. Uh, But that's important because this burial ground was certainly active during 1800, the year of Gabriel's conspiracy. And so a lot of the public history associated with this site has tied it to uh, Gabriel's rebellion. The enslaved blacksmith who led an extensive um, network uh, of planning to try to overthrow the institution of slavery in the city in 1800. The plot was betrayed by stormy weather and leaked plans, uh, but there were a number of executions that took place as a result of the trials following its uh, exposure. Uh, And so, latest research suggests that perhaps the gallows was located on a temporary site just west of here, uh, but in any case, the burials may well have likely taken place here of those conspirators, including possibly Gabriel himself. Now, we do know of at least two specific burials that did take place at this site. One was a free woman of color who had a piece of property up on the hillside, and when she wanted to be buried in her own land there, not down into this uh, fairly difficult uh, site and unsavory, undignified site in the eyes of many of the free black community, Uh, She was buried on her own land, but when the city authorities learned about that, they had her body disinterred and then brought down to the burial ground for Negroes. Harry Davis is another name we could mention associated with this site. When he died in 1815, he was imprisoned uh, for being presumed a runaway in Henrico County. Turned out that he was uh, a free person, but uh, when he died imprisoned, his body was presumably brought to this burial site here. He may have been one of the last interments at the site. Pressure from the free black community on the city to open up a more dignified, more eligible, larger burial site, moved the city in 1816 uh, to open up a new site on the north side of town. And so burials ceased in this original burial ground for Negroes so-called in 1816. And you can see on the map to the right from 1817, where this uh, interesting shaped property we think may have been the footprint of the burial ground was almost immediately repurposed as the site for a school and later the site for a jail. Um, Further desecration and destruction of this original African burial ground took place over the years, capped off by the construction of Interstate 95, uh, but by 2007, researchers had been able to overlay historic maps there and see that perhaps an edge may have reached over into what was then being used as a parking lot that was purchased by Virginia Commonwealth University in 2007. Here we can see on the left uh, a photograph from Shannon Marola showing the site of Lumpkins Jail looking to the north underneath the uh, overpass And through that overpass of Broad Street, we can see the parking lot of perhaps the site here of the African Burial Ground. There was a number of protests that rose up in the 2000s to, as you see there on the right, to try to reclaim the site, to remove the parking lot, led by the Defenders for Freedom, Justice and Equality, the NAACP, some VCU faculty and students. And so in 2011, The state provided funding to acquire this site from the city, excuse me, from VCU and to turn it over uh, to the city where it is now an important part of the slave trail uh, from the slave trail commission. Today this is uh, some of the signage that has been put up on the reclaimed African burial ground and there's some really interesting engagement going on at the site today. Uh, Groups such as the Defenders or Untold RVA or the Allegra Folklore Society have held uh, events on the grounds, including on the right, you can see here from 2015, an elevation ceremony to release from bondage the memory of enslaved Africans, where attendees placed slips of paper with the names of those who who died during this time period uh, in the area in bondage on the tree. So helping us see this connection between these two sites of St. John's Churchyard and the so-called burial ground for Negroes, later the African burial ground. And moving on to our next change, we get this cemetery district set up on the north side of town, with uh, the, the new burying ground you can see there, the so-called Jews' cemetery there, and the so-called graveyard for free people of color and for slaves that was started in 1816 and 1822, uh, respectively. You can see my arrow at the top there. We're going to get to a site in 1815 that was the Barton Heights cemeteries. So this is a new generation. Um, The city's plans there was to buy this and use it for, quote, a burying ground for white persons, because they knew that St. John's Churchyard was filling up around this time. We also see the creation of a poorhouse there. So this is going to be used as a municipal facility for a variety of reasons. But that new burying ground would open up in the early 1820s. There you can see Richard Young's plan for what would become Shaco Hill Cemetery. It looks very different from St. John's Churchyard. It's got gridded avenues or streets. It's got decorative plantings. It sold family plots to the city's rising classes of doctors, ministers, lawyers, merchants, soldiers, factory owners. Uh, but a city ordinance prohibited Blacks from venturing inside unless they were working as servants with their families. Um, you can see Jane Stenard's grave on the right showing us a representative early marker from that burial ground in its neoclassical lines. Um, Edgar Allan Poe was an admirer and apparently visited uh, her her grave site there. Note that grid was also applied at Hebrew Cemetery. This was not the first Jewish burial ground in the city. That was started in 1791 down in Shaco Bottom at the foot of Church Hill, Uh, but that started to fill up as well. So Jewish residents had been an important part of the city since the Revolution and and after. They played important parts in the military and in businesses and in government. And uh, one of the city council people, uh, Benjamin Wolfe, requested an acre from the city uh, for use by Congregation Beth Shalom, which was granted in 1816. I apologize for the, the dog barking in the background. I didn't anticipate that. Uh, but the gravestones that we can see at Hebrew Cemetery show an interesting blend of assimilation and distinctiveness. Uh, they often feature Hebrew lettering as well as English script, too. And so on Benjamin Wolf's grave on the right, you can see that um, on his tomb, the Hebrew script above has fairly pious language. It says, this is the grave of the honorable man, Benjamin, son of Wolf. It gives the Hebrew date of his passing, and it concludes with an abbreviation from the first book of Samuel. May his soul be bound up in the bond of eternal life. But the English script is more prosaic. It just says, here lies the remains of Benjamin Wolf, concludes uh, from a message from his widow. Um, We see this tension between assimilation and distinctiveness also, Uh, in terms of the Confederate soldiers section that would be an important part of the cemetery during and after the Civil War. Um, A number of Jewish residents uh, fought for the Confederacy and committed fully behind the Confederate cause. And after the war, there was a Hebrew Ladies Memorial Association. And you can see their flyer, uh, their circular on the right. Um, They were worried about, quote, the malicious tongue of slander, ever so ready to assail Israel. And they were seeking funds to prepare a monument to say, there is our reply. And so they had gathered at least uh, 30 burials of Jewish soldiers for this soldier section. And by 1868, they had raised funds to, to, to erect this commemorative fence that we see there with a cast iron fence with these stacked muskets, crossed swords, furled flags and caps, um, it continues today in use. The that is Hebrew cemetery, uh, and it uh, it's not quite as firm uh, a boundary between um, European immigrants uh, and African uh, residents. Here we see the Reverend Isaac Judah, who served as the very first reader of Congregation Beth Shalom, alongside that of his mother, Abigail Judah. In his will in 1827, Isaac Judah singled out Philip Norborn with and Benjamin with, whom he described as free mulatto boys and brothers whom I brought up, and he gave them property and money in consideration of, quote, my natural regard for them. And uh, one of the, the young men, Benjamin with would actually take Judah's surname. So we believe that these were his children, his natural children and across the valley in what we call today, the Barton Heights cemeteries, we can find Philip With's uh, grave marker there. One of the earliest um, African-American memorials that I've been able to identify in the city. Um, You can see that headstone there raised in 1827 or Philip N.J. With, This burial ground began in 1815 when the free Black community, including Christopher McPherson, raised their own funds to purchase their own property on Academy Hill uh, as part of the Burying Ground Society of the Free People of Color. And there, other groups would soon join them. The Union Burial Ground Society, or titled Union Mechanics on the map there, there was an Ebenezer group, there was a Methodist group, and after the Civil War, the Sons and Daughters of Ham and Sycamore. Ultimately, this would grow to 12 acres, and uh, it was similarly gridded and decorated along the lines of what we saw at Chaco Hill in Hebrew, uh, but there were their own priorities uh, highlighted at this site. Note the language of this stone is placed here by Benjamin Wythe, showing a very strong Uh, Statement of who gets to speak for the dead there or at John Fagan's gravestone over here. It notes his uh, Prominent role as leader of the second African Baptist Church choir when he died there in 1854 so the Barton Heights cemeteries a really critical component of this burial landscape uh, perhaps the earliest free black cemetery uh, in the state of Virginia Back across the valley, those who did not have the means or who were enslaved of African descent were buried in this second African burial ground that started off with two acres on the uh, northeast corner of Fifth and Hospital Streets. This is perhaps the largest and longest serving burial ground for the enslaved in the nation. Uh, it would grow to over 30 acres and uh, receive an estimated 22,000 burials. It would remain active from 1816 through 1819. You can see a list of the interments on the right, showing connections all across the city. The name of this site would slip around. It did not have a very solid name. It was called. Uh, At one point, the Colored Person's Burial Ground, uh, the African Burying Ground, and lastly, the Potter's Field. Um, And at the bottom right, you see a map from Lenora McQueen showing the expansion of that site uh, from those initial two acres over time. Uh, But after the war, the site would be uh, exploded by the powder magazine, dug into, run through with roads and a bridge, sold off for use as a dog pound and later as an automobile service station. Uh, And so this is what unfortunately the core of that site, those original two acres look like today. Um, Those challenges for preservation also affected the Barton Heights cemeteries. Uh, The Barton Heights cemeteries were closed when uh, a group of white homeowners moved in to create the Barton Heights uh, streetcar development in the early 1900s. And uh, the city took over ownership by the 1930s and it too fell into disrepair. But we see some rebirth lately. In the 1990s, Denise Lester, that you see there on the left of the screen came in. She moved to town in that time. She traced her family history to the Barton Heights cemeteries. She uh, got the city to install new fencing, raise historic signage, listed it on the National Register for Historic Places, and started to hold annual celebrations on the grounds. Lenora McQueen uh, helps uh, identify the, the true boundaries of that Chaco Hill African burial ground after she discovered her fourth great grandmother, Kitty Carey, to have likely been buried on that site. Uh, and she continues to do phenomenal work pushing that site into the city's consciousness, including the city's recent reacquisition of those original two, two acres or so. At the bottom, we see the Friends of Shaco Hill Cemetery addressing some of the difficulties faced actually at Shaco Hill Cemetery after that became full. And we started to see a rise in some vandalism at that site and create some new markers. And on the right, Hebrew Cemetery Company still takes great pride and care in that cemetery. And so we see a guided tour led by uh, members of the Beth Ahaba Museum and Archives. Uh, where the Hebrew Cemetery Company is now affiliated with. Let's move on to our third wave or our third stage of cemetery development. Um, Rather than a grid, we see a rural cemetery model at Hollywood on the west and Oakwood on the east. Uh, You can see the curvilinear designs here. These were picturesque designs intended to be a more natural setting for burials, but these still divided burials strictly by race. Hollywood uh, barred black burials early on uh, by kind of tacit uh, understandings and tacit assumptions. On the right, Oakwood Cemetery did have black burials early on, but they were not in the formal patterned family portions of those grounds. Uh, The burial of, quote, colored persons in the language of the ordinance was uh, placed along the lowlands to the east along Stony Run Creek. And so you can hear that in their uh, ordinance that specified the plans suggested by members of the council is to make a cemetery of the west side and a burying ground for colored persons along the northeast line. And that was the site of those infamous grave robbing scandals from the 1880s. Now, both of these sites would serve as major uh, places for Confederate memory. Hollywood especially, Uh, we can see various uh, references to the large numbers of Confederate burials there. At least 11,000 soldiers buried during the war in Hollywood, 16,000 buried during the war at Oakwood, making up over 10% of the entire war's dead. And so after the war, ladies' memorial associations and memorial days and reburials like that of Jefferson Davis would continue to build Uh, on those associations. And so here we see the Friends of Hollywood Cemetery uh, continuing fundraising, telling different stories about the site, and we see ongoing Confederate commemorations. There, one example at Oakwood Cemetery in 2017 uh, that has been supported for a long time uh, by funding from the state of Virginia. Meanwhile, African-American graves in Oakwood uh, on those historic portions to the east uh, remain unacknowledged. We're gonna speed through just a couple last stops. One stop I wanna point out is Richmond National Cemetery. This presented some openings for black and white burials together. This is a new model of cemetery created after the Civil War, during and after the Civil War by the federal government uh, to recover Union soldier burials throughout uh, the South and to gather them into centralized national cemeteries. There are five in the Richmond region Richmond National Cemeteries is the closest to the city, within two miles of the state capitol. And you can see there the design no grave is more important than the other, divided into quadrants with the flagpole at the center and a, a superintendent's lodge there for permanent attendance at the site afterwards. Uh, black troops, members of the United States Colored Troops, were buried alongside whites and the black population of Richmond took a special interest in Richmond National Cemetery and led a lot of the Decoration Day ceremonies there into the 20th century. Um, There was some racial dissension there around that time, which the book goes into, but I'm gonna have to skip for sake of time and bring us up to the current day when the cemetery has fairly always been maintained well by the Department of Veteran Affairs, Uh, But in 2007 and after, these Wreaths Across America uh, events have brought new attention to our local national cemeteries. And at the bottom of the screen, you see Joanne Meeker, who discovered a family connection to the site and wrote a fantastic book telling the history of the stories beneath the stones and and led tours there. Um, Our last stop here is at East End and Evergreen Cemetery that were founded after emancipation as places of of uplift and dignity to provide uh, places for black burials when the Barton Heights cemeteries were shut down. These were formed by private companies or associations, and they definitely had Hollywood Cemetery in mind as a a model of what they wanted to compare themselves with. Ultimately, this would grow into almost 80 acres of burial grounds, and they featured a, a parade of notables. You could see the the formal plan and formal designs that they had uh, stretching up the site. Uh, We see the Braxton family mausoleum there at Evergreen Cemetery. The Daniel Farrar family plot uh, well-maintained with this pedestal marker and some of those rectangular markers at its base. And then a picture of Maggie Walker visiting her family plot and visiting her husband's grave with her granddaughter there. And we see how well cared for those historic photographs show. Uh, But those of us in Richmond are well aware of the decline of East End and Evergreen cemeteries in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and afterwards. There's a lot of reasons for that decline. We can point to vandalism. There is Rebecca Mitchell's marker, Knocked Over, the title of the article, Beer Parties Held in Two Richmond Cemeteries. Hundreds of stones were smashed or stolen. Uh, A tremendous amount of dumping took place, including over a thousand tires that have been removed from East End Cemetery. And then at the bottom of the screen, you can see the overgrowth that crept in even up until uh, Maggie Walker's cross and her family plot. But this is a real site of transformation uh, within the past 20 or so years, beginning, as you can see down there, with the role of uh, not only descendant families, uh, but the National Park Service, rangers from the Maggie Walker historic site, uh, paying new attention to it, building momentum with Veronica Davis and other volunteers, working with the descendants, students, soldier groups, church and community groups to come in and try to reclaim uh, this site. And there's been uh, really a tremendous success in that. What I've seen out there for the past 10 years has really renewed my faith in the in the city. Um, we've gone so far as to create a A digital map for East End Cemetery, whose records are basically all lost, to be able to connect descendants to their loved ones and uh, allow people from further away to see the the burial sites there. Uh, Lately, the Enrichment Foundation has acquired both uh, Evergreen and East End Cemetery, and I'm hoping that we can get it right there with Enrichment. There's been some difficulties. They've displaced some of the longtime volunteers. They've set up some barriers to our work there. We're still not quite sure how the state that has funded Enrichment's acquisition uh, made that determination for Enrichment. They've put out a master plan that we still have some questions about. And a list of 40 descendants have recently called on the governor to halt Enrichment's plans until we get a little bit more clarity uh, about the plan and, and descendant engagement going forward. And so I'll conclude here by just noting that the history of the city's memorials goes far beyond that of, of Monument Avenue. We've got 300 years of nationally significant sites uh, yoked as much to our Richmond's verdant landscape as to its racial divide, uh, where these presence of human remains carry a really special weight. But across that divide, we do see essential connections, as well as a new generation of activists that are trying to build a broader sense of awareness through the grounds. And so I'd suggest that the stakes are really high here, including the recognition of the personhood of black indigenous residents and the possibility of a rebirth community here in the symbolic center of the South. And so I hope that the story I told today and my book helps further some momentum towards these ends. And so I, Conclude with that. Hopefully, we have a time for a little bit of questions and apologizing again for the uh, shaky technology connection. So, let me see if I can exit my screen um, and get us back to our hosts.
0: Thank you, Ryan. Uh, A great presentation, Uh, and and I'll echo. uh, the work that's being done at Evergreen Cemetery is really inspiring. Um, I had the opportunity to, to tour uh, that uh, uh, it, recently and it, its transformation is is just remarkable and uh, we're hoping that uh, we can continue those efforts uh, to restore uh, that to its former glory. So uh, for our viewers, if you are logged into F- to Facebook or to uh, you two, uh, please send us your questions. We've got a few minutes. Uh, we do have one question that came in earlier during during the conversation uh, from Sheila, uh, who said uh, my ancestors were enslaved by the Talo family uh, at an area outside of Richmond, and was asking whether uh, you might know where uh, their enslaved people were buried.
1: Okay out at Mount Airy towards uh, the Northern Neck, I suppose. Uh, I think that's Richmond County, which is a little bit outside of our central Virginia region. Um, But that specific question, I should say, points us to an important theme that I didn't have time to touch on, which is that there are a lot of family burial grounds, smaller burial grounds throughout the state and earlier throughout the colony. And so, enslaved workers, laborers at Mount Airy would likely have been buried nearby, uh, probably not in a more formal cemetery of a communal sort, but of uh, a family burial ground on the on the property of the plantation. Um, Lynn Rainville's book, Hidden History, does a great job of showing in central Virginia the pattern of these family burial grounds spread throughout the more rural parts of the state or the more agricultural parts of the state. Even here in Richmond, that tendency for Virginians, uh, whether enslaved or or white property owners, to bury on their own lands uh, outside of a churchyard or outside of a municipal cemetery of some sort would continue. Just a couple blocks away from St. John's Churchyard was the Adams-Carrington family Uh, family burial ground, and the Pickett family burial ground, and there are a number of those little family burial grounds in pockets throughout the city, some of which still survive, like the Shields family burial ground near Bird Park, Uh, and so I would suggest to uh, the question there, uh, you would want to look at kind of where the residences were, those folks, and so if it was at Mount Airy, uh, the burials, at least for those Uh, immediate descendants connected to that site would probably not be far away from from that plantation itself.
0: Thank you. Uh, Anna asks, uh, why you took this approach uh, to elevate the stories of cemeteries as a way of telling Richmond's history? It's a great question. Many people have taken uh, different ways to approach Richmond's history. uh, Why cemeteries?
1: Well, that's a great question. I, I do hope that the book and a talk like this can provide something like a, a parallel history of the city itself. It, it really shows the major themes and events throughout the city's history. A lot of us are used to thinking about, learning about biographies and everything else through, through the burial grounds. And I'll say I, I've always had a fascination for religious art and architecture, and I'm fairly new to Richmond, when I moved here in 1999, I'll say that I didn't understand the, the city or the state's history quite so well, but when I started teaching some classes on this subject of the cemeteries, I found that it opened up for me the city's history in a, in a way that was, was a more human way, it was more visceral way, and I could understand the dynamics in a way that I did not understand from just your more general tours or your more general monographs and, and, and textbooks. And I teach at VCU, and, and so a lot of my students seem to be responding to those connections to the city's history in the same way. Um, and what frustrated me, I suppose, and what really led me into the book itself and my my approach to the book, was that we can learn so much about the way that uh, European history or white history or Confederate history is presented at at some of these more well-preserved sites. But at other sites, clearly, the African Burial Ground, through the second African Burial Ground, through Barton Heights, through these indigenous burials, you know, there's a whole piece of that history that had been missing from the mainstream narratives, from the mainstream histories. And so the reclamation of those sites helps us tell that story in a a more full way. And the the reclamation struck me as as a really important story to tell as part of how we can create a fuller history of the city through the landscape.
0: Marie asks whether there are guided tours for any of these cemeteries.
1: There are guided tours. I believe that the Valentine Museum here in Richmond offers usually every Memorial Day and perhaps a little bit more often than that, Uh, offers a a bus tour. I'm not sure how that has held up during the the COVID pandemic here, but I'm sure that they're eager to get back to that tradition, where they have very well-trained tour guides that visit quite a variety of these sites. I will mention also the James River Hikers Organization has organized a number of site tours, more grassroots tours through a number of different types of these sites, where they've hiked from one to the other or and sometimes driven from one to the other. I believe that um, there are other entities here in town, possibly Historic Richmond Foundation, making plans for some of these graveyard tours as well. And uh, the last, uh, there are a couple other private tour companies I think that specialize in, in graveyard tours. So it's a great, a great question. We tried to create a do-it-yourself tour with my students through that www.richmondcemeteries.org website where there's a page for all of these major cemeteries that I've talked about today. And the students have created biographies or guides to individual graves at each of these sites that you could uh, listen to or find your way to by using your, your cell phone or your smartphone at, at the site itself. So technology might give, give us a new way to give yourself a guided tour at, at some of these sites that you might be more interested in exploring.
0: Yes, and I believe that the Valentine has a uh, self-guided uh, driving tour that you can access through their, through their website, so be sure to check that out. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm, I'm curious uh, whether you're continuing to do research on this, whether there'll be another, another publication?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I, I wrote my very first book on church architecture in the 19th century, and then I moved on from there to something of a biography of, a, of an American founder, Robert Morris in Philadelphia, who tried to build this really extravagant townhouse. And so now my third book project has been on the cemeteries. And so over the course of my, my research and my publishing, I've, I've tended to move from one project to another without a lot of overlap between them. And so I anticipated that that's what I would do after this one. Uh, this project has been so rewarding, and there's so much more research to do, and so much more work to do to reclaim and protect these sites, that I'm, I'm finding it hard uh, to let this one go. Uh, and so I don't, I don't know for me personally if I'll have another book in it, but as I was writing the rebirth book, I did remember feeling like each of the chapters really deserved a book unto itself. I was always having to cut material out and try to shorten it just as I had to do today, so uh, there are a number of really great books on some of these burial grounds, but there's, there's plenty more to be written on, on many of these sites. So uh, y- your question for me, uh, I, my guess is that I've, I've got at least uh, more to do with the website and maybe some articles as well, and, and more hopefully some community engagement with, with all these groups doing such wonderful work.
0: Well, it's certainly a fascinating topic, um, and thank you so much for your presentation. Again, uh, you can order signed copies of, uh, of Ryan's book uh, through our website, www.shopvirginiahistory.org. Um, thank you again all for joining us. Uh, be sure to join us uh, on May 5th for our next Banner Lecture, uh, Robert E. Lee and me. Uh, in the meantime, Please be well, take care, and thank you again for your support. Good afternoon.